0: Connecting to the AOC Podcast Network. Enjoy your stay. Well, good morning. Um, I'd like to thank you to Le Cut Do Podcast. I'd like to thank my guest and my friend Mike Blanche for showing up this morning. I just invited him yesterday. Sometimes last minute works. <laughs> and uh, I'd like to wish you happy hump day because today is Wednesday. It is. So, Mike, thank you for coming. Oh,
1: Becca, my pleasure. It's always a pleasure to be with you and to and to, uh, this will be a new experience for me doing one of your podcasts. I'm looking forward to it.
0: I'd like to thank you for dressing up because I wasn't clear with you that it was not like a show because they are, there are um, public shows like television shows, but this is simply. Well, so you look good. I'm sure you smell good. Enough. Oh, I, I look. Good. I don't know
1: if I look good. I hope I smell good. Uh, and I, but more importantly, I hope I talk good today. I
0: hope you talk good too. So you and I go back a long way. Um, I remember meeting you when I was working with the Extra Mile. That
1: was in the early 90s. It was the early 90s. I was, at that time, the director of the Volunteer Center of Lafayette. Yeah. And the Extra Mile was a very interesting concept here in Louisiana. I know you know this, but I'm going to say it so your listeners can get more background to it. Um, uh, In the state of Texas— some of the state agencies began using volunteers. And so the concept came across the border to Louisiana. It was met with some skepticism and some trepidation by state employees, in particular because many of them felt that they were going to be displaced by volunteers. But the the mission of the Extra Mile was to not displace state employees, but to help extend and enhance their their services to clients in three particular areas, um, uh, mental health, substance abuse, and developmental disabilities. And so I was uh, Lee Duki was the initial uh, executive director of the Extra Mile. Wow! And she approached me as as the director of the Volunteer Center to be a resource, invited me on, to be on the board. That's how I got involved. Of course, Lee left and um, went other places, and then of course Linda Boudreaux stepped in and is still the executive director of the Extra Mile. So that's how uh, I got involved with the Extra Mile. And I know you were recruited as a as a volunteer. Uh, so
0: I can ask you a question about that because I never knew. Um, there were, I think, 10 initial VISTA volunteers. And I know that of there were four people in the Lafayette office where we actually had an office at what was at that time Acadiana Mental Health. Mm-hmm. And two of the four of us were known to have diagnosis was that something they tried to do too? And how did, did that meet with any trepidation? Um, were they afraid to have people with psychiatric diagnosis working in the psychiatric hospital? Do you know? Um,
1: I can't speak definitively, Becca, but to my knowledge, that was not an issue, not a, a negative issue, not a, a problem. Uh, in fact, you know, that was um, the days in which. Uh, Peer-to-peer support was, was being encouraged. Exactly. So to actually bring somebody in who had uh, firsthand experience with a mental health issue, either personally or because a family member had some type of mental illness or diagnosis of a mental illness, uh, that was really viewed to, from my perspective and from the board members of the Extra Mile as really a plus rather than a negative.
0: It's really funny that what is a negative in your life becomes a plus and it gets you hired. <laughs> you know. That's true. Cuz you That's don't necessarily feel all positive about having had this shared experience with the people that you serve, but it, but it's but it's it was, and it is still very powerful.
1: It's not the type of thing that you would <laughs> want to put on a resume, but it, it is a, a, an interesting point. Ironically, it is something that qualified you well, exactly to, when to you, be a Vista volunteer.
0: And earlier, when you said that it was met with some like fear and trepidation, I think it's because we were diagnosed. No, no, no. Now I get just the
1: whole. No, volunteer. the trepidation was the again, und- again that Please, state yeah. employees, of course, you know, um, uh, were, were, were fearful that uh, the 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 real purpose behind this uh new organization or new effort was to bring in volunteers not, not paid obviously um to displace the paid staff but that was never the never the intention exactly
0: that was really a wonderful experience for me because without feeling um, diagnosed or, or not diagnosed it it gave me a place to serve with a diagnosis that was for me a long time coming yes. because I had my first psychiatric hospitalization in 1969 mm-hmm. I didn't get a diagnosis until 1985 I got divorced in 1986 and then moved to Lafayette and so when I was able to do this work it was a continuation of me being able to live healthier because the diagnosis allowed me to have something to hold on to and my life experience ended up being something I could share with other people in, um, in a way to serve, like serious service. And seri- it was wonderful.
1: Absolutely. Well, and I think when, when we talk about having a diagnosis, uh, that's gonna we can come back to this later. But to me, when you have a name for something, you can begin to understand it better. Um, you know, the, the book of poetry I published back in September is called Naming the Silence. Oh, And wow. it is about having or giving a name to the things that are very hard for us to articulate. We'll, we can come back to that later. But I wanted to add, though, that, that that experience was a way to validate both for you as what we called a client of mental health services. Oh, exactly. To say, hey— Despite the fact I have this diagnosis and I've gone through these experiences, which to the outside world could be viewed as a negative, an illness, a sickness, or whatever—oh, definitely—what we call a disqualifying circumstance. Uh, but, it, and it, but it, but it, but it, instead, it validates for you that hey, in spite of this, I can do something. I can be a, 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 a contributor to an organization. I can be, be be valued. I can be trusted. But I think. As important was the fact that the clients that you would be working with or that could witness you could say, ah, there's a path for me perhaps as well.
0: I mean, I wasn't living the high life. To this day, I'm still not living a high life, but I'm functioning.
1: No, that's, that's, that's right. Oh, this, my goodness. This is not the, 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 the you know the rags to riches uh, success story. No, no, no. Uh, no, no. no the, oh, she's made it and she's living, yeah. your, like I said, the high life. No, it's that she has been able to come through this experience, the, the, the dark woods of, of, of a mental health uh, diagnosis.
0: So I'm so happy you came. Because you know the people I worked with, and you knew me at that time. Yeah, I know some
1: of your stories oh, now. Oh, that's
0: funny. So I, <laughs> I know ha-
1: some of the skeletons you're. Cl- no, just-
0: I feel sorry for my children. Not really, you know. We all have to deal with whoever our parents are, so they just have to deal with this. <clears throat> but I actually received an award from the bishop from the Diocese of Lafayette, and an award from the from Lamy. Mm-hmm. Which is the Louisiana Alliance for Mental Illness? Yes. Uh-huh. As uh, for my outstanding services <laughs> as a person with mental illness. Yeah. Now, okay. Well,
1: you're certainly, a sh- like <laughs> I've, I've said before, a shining example. You know, right. to, to a number of people.
0: This shining example may not have been viewed as a shining example of anything because my children's mama made the newspaper for being mentally ill. Uh-huh. Now. Oh, You know, you kind of have to, you know, you have to play the chords you were dealt.
1: That's the other side of the double-edged sword.
0: But as their mom, I had this big conviction or, you know, like I had to do as much as I could do. So if they ever had this, they wouldn't have to succumb to the social pressure or to the illness itself, because no illness is easy to deal with. But when you have an illness and society looks down their nose on you for even having it, then that's a bigger burden.
1: Okay. so. But something something tells me, Becca, that uh, there may have been some ambivalence on the part of your children, whereas, as you say, they might have been somewhat ashamed or... Stigmatized by by your openness about your diagnosis, but to, something tells me that deep down inside there was also a lot of pride in your children to say that Mama has the courage, and if she can be courageous about things like this, then I can be courageous about things that I'm going to experience in life. I really or don't have to know. Deal with in life.
0: I really don't know, but listen.
1: Well, they may have never said that. It's to okay. You, we, but, you know, we don't always have this. That's, deep just, that's just my hunch.
0: And they're my kids, and I'm their mom. And your mama can never do everything right or anything right, depending. I had a mama, too, you know. So one day, in light of my awards, my son at the time was working at Tampico's. Mm -hmm. And he came a week or so ago on on May 19th. And May 20th, he invited me to go there to see him. And so um,
1: he's a musician. He's a musician. Uh Mm
0: -hmm. and, And he was a bartender there. back in the day. So I went and this is, I think this is hysterical but anyway. And one of his buddies comes to the table and he's like, oh mom I heard you won a prize. I heard you got an award and I'm under my breath I'm saying shut up. Just shut up. Because I don't know who I was sitting with. You know, it was their friends. But he was all happy so I said, oh thank you very much and then
1: well, you see, I he think, went. He I went think, on. I think okay. that 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 speaks to the point.
0: So then, the lady sitting next to me, who seemed to be either a young professional or maybe in school, everybody's young when you're visiting your child's work, you know. <clears throat> so she looks at me and she says, "Well, what award did you receive?" I'm like, "Okay." When a child asks a question, you only answer that. And you have to say no more, because under my breath, I'm thinking, shut up, you too. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, um, client of the year. Now, what does that mean? Or maybe consumer of the year, consumer, because consumer yeah. was the new buzzword yes. for the name we called uh, we replaced people with mental illness or mental patient. Patient, yeah. We we replaced it with consumer, which has exactly no meaning, right?
1: It's it's, it's very it's very neutral. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I just said consumer of the year, <laughs> and so then she asked, "What what had I consumed?" <laughs> oh damn! And I'm still saying shut up, but I'm not saying it out loud, and I, I wouldn't. But anyway, and I said, well. Mental health services. So then she gets this very serious look on her face, and she says, "More than anyone else in the whole state." And I'm like, "Lord, I'm not that nuts." But and then, and I said, "No." Um, and before I could say anything else, and really, I didn't know what else to say. I'm thinking of all the politicians and the characters in this state. I'm not crazier than all of them. And so she points to someone else sitting at the table, and she says, "Oh." You should talk to her because she works with the developmentally disabled. And so I get real serious, but not too serious, but I'm not angry because I'm really not. And nobody really understands because it's a subject that we don't talk about. And political correctness is maybe helpful or just where we were at the time. And so I looked at her, and with the nicest voice I could muster, I said, I'm not retarded, I'm crazy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let's get this straight. <laughs> so,
0: but we can't say retarded either. No, that's, that's And right. we can't say crazy either, but retardé meaning slow like in in yeah. you know in music you go slow you go fast whatever it's like we can't say that someone is slow we can so we we neutralize. So
1: but part of the issue was that this young woman was, was, was equating mental illness with developmental disability. She wasn't clear. And, and they're obviously not the same.
0: Exactly. But when you say client or consumer, which has no meaning, it has no meaning. So between these two young women was a young man. He left the table. Okay, I know that I scared him because we are afraid socially in our own families, um, our society doesn't give respect or even kindness or tolerance to people with mental illness. So I just saw he left, and you know, I was used to that because people are scared of us. So part of my um, job to advocate was to let people know when I spoke with them you know, I, I, like, are y'all afraid of me? Well, no, why would we? And then I could say, well, I have mental illness. Because we are afraid of people with mental yeah. illness. quite so, often.
1: so you think that young young man got up and left because of fear? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh.
0: Everybody's afraid, but we don't yes. know why. But uh-huh. I understand that. Fear more than... So, <clears throat> so at the end of my visit, I go to the door, and my son is there. And a number of his friends are standing in a circle. And so he looks at this young man who was... Someone I'd, I hadn't met yet. And he goes, oh, did you meet my mom? And so, like in the cartoons, he takes two steps back out of the circle.
1: This is the young man who got up from the table. The young
0: yeah. man that I scared who was sitting at the table. And, and he looks directly at my son and he said, you mean the case? Oh, no. Because he was scared. And so his word for crazy or mentally ill or whatever was I was just a case. Your mom was a case. A mental case. As exactly. Say, yeah. So then he takes two steps back, and my son, you know, he puts his arm around me and kind of hugs me, pulls me close to him, and says, yeah, that's my mom. That's you my know. mom. <laughs> so like it or not, it, it's a, it's amazing how my job at a and mental health Allowed me to be okay with this. I'm not so sure how much shame my children had, or as you said, but I did, and I had to not be af- afraid of myself or ashamed of myself to help other people. Yeah,
1: well, it's interesting, Becca. That Isn't that amazing? Used, well, it's it's, it's, it's hysterical. It's I can, yes.
0: and I can say that with a lot more seasoning and you know well, and funnier. It,
1: but in <laughs> a couple of things, going back to the extra mile, and that was part of their. Their, their their benefit or their purpose was twofold, internally to provide services for cl- patients, clients, consumers, whatever yeah. the, the term du jour was, uh, but also to advocate in the community for those exactly. clients um, to help re- re- remove or reduce some of the stigma. Um, and so when you used the word advocate just a second ago, I was thinking that, that award you got was as much for being an advocate oh, totally. for people with mental illnesses as much as being a consumer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because but. like the young woman said, you mean you got more <laughs> psychiatric care than anybody else in the state of Louisiana? Wow. I mean, it's like, it's like going to the grocery store and saying, you know, this is our top consumer. You bought more groceries than anybody else. Because
0: that's else. what we equate consumer with.
1: Exactly. So it's, it is in some ways um, – it, 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 it helps accomplish the purpose of taking the stigma away. But, <coughs> excuse me. But at the same time, it, it, it's it's so nondescript as not to be helpful exactly. a, at all. Um,
0: so understand that w- we take a word that is charged and we remove it, and we bring in a word that is neutral or without a charge. But then, as soon as the word becomes the definition of people with psychiatric diagnoses, it's charged again.
1: Well, that's right. Times catch up. That's right. So, Times so the up. thing
0: is to be nice to the people rather than call them something without meaning. Yeah. Well, and and that's uh, uh, you know tolerance and and that kind of thing, acceptance. But there's great fear. Is if you if you had cancer and. I was lucky enough to have had cancer a few times and still be here to talk about it.
1: You're qualified for that, too.
0: In five years, you give yourself a party. Let me tell you, Mike.
1: Five years of being cancer-free, you mean?
0: Let me tell you, Mike Blanchett, I never gave myself a party, and nobody offered to give me no kind of party when I hadn't had a psychiatric hospitalization in five years. Mm -hmm. You don't publicly celebrate that.
1: Well, because you don't want to admit, or people don't want to, to have to deal with that.
0: Because... Because we have a social fear, mm-hmm. it's amazing what fear motivates us and how fear is.
1: But but that that <laughs> that kind of fits in with a broad concept in my mind of, of healing. Um, you're, you're, you had to come because to me healing and and, and 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 dealing with a mental illness, to me begins with. with I think mental health, let's just put it that way, totally, not an illness, yeah. because we all have mental health issues. Yeah, You're sad, you're angry, you're depressed, you're anxious, you're worried, you're whatever, you're distracted. But I think it, it, it begins in part with an acceptance of, of what is, totally. of reality. Totally. And I think the more we try to deny what is, there becomes a split within our own psyche, where we say, well, I've got it, but I'm not going to talk about it. I'm going to live this other life. Live the lie, as they say.
0: And dissociation is a diagnosis.
1: Yes. (laughs) So I think, you know, you... The world lives in that. And I've used the word courage, you know, in speaking both about you and to you. Yeah. Because I think you are a person of great courage. And I think what that comes down to is... Having the courage, the boldness to accept what is, yeah. in spite of the potential uh, stigma stigma attached to it or not the alienation stigmata. attached Let's to not it. Let's not
0: say stigmata.
1: No, no, not the stigmata. <laughs> That's a different kind of thing. Okay, I was trying to avoid saying stigmatization, but but I, but I said it anyway, exactly. so I got it out. Um, and I think at the same time, your children. In their own lives, but also in terms of their relationship with you as a mother, there's a split yeah. when they can't accept what is. And so I think healing does involve an acceptance of what is, coming to terms with it, totally. not trying to deny it. Um, and that's the case, I think, with anything that happens in our life um, that's that's that could be traumatic or negative. Uh, again, a, a diagnosis of cancer. Um, certainly when I worked with hospice for many, many years, um, those were people who, you know, were ha- not just cancer, but any type of yeah, life-threatening life con- condition. You know, we're going to um,
0: pretend like we won't die.
1: And and that was sometimes because people said, well, you know, in hospice, we're, 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 what's the beginning point in hospice? Where do you begin? And the answer this may not be the clinically correct answer for a nurse <laughs> or for a social worker, although the different disciplines have their own starting points. I think the best answer is the the starting point is where the patient and family are at that moment. Exactly. And so if the patient and or the family are in denial, then one of the starting points might be to, Let's reconcile their view of reality with what is real. Uh, let's accept the fact that you have a diagnosis of a life-threatening illness. Now, of course, that doesn't doesn't mean that if the patient's in severe pain, we're not going to we're, we're not going to get to addressing pain until they, later. Until you, you have to admit that you're dying before we'll t- no no. no, no, no but be. but in terms of I think. And that's part of the beauty of hospice, that it was more about the more than uh, about more than just caring for the body. But again, I think the point I'm making is in your life, in your children's life, in the life of the, your friends, because I think you know we talk about relationships as being whole or fractured, exactly, or fragmented, or broken, and and healing. To me, and it, I'm, I'm kind of a stickler for. I'm radical in the sense of language, you know, I like to think of the root meanings of words. It's because healing you're a writer. Healing Hello. comes from yeah. you know the word means whole, like right. holy. And so to me healing means putting things together. So if there's a fracture in a relationship between you and your children or you and your friends over the fact that they want to distance themselves from you because of a diagnosis, well then the fact that they have overcome that. And they've had the courage also to exactly. say, "I don't, I can't say I du- I don't care what my friends say because they certainly do." But in spite of what exactly. my friends think, I love my mama and I can deal with that and I can accept that. And your friends as well.
0: Oh, I think, I think that's true. And then it brings me to this other place which I never really thought about before. In in all of that that you and I have in common in the different populations we have served. Um, what is the difference between having a diagnosis and being an artist?
1: Well, that's an that's inter- a good question, an interesting question. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, you could have a diagnosis of being an artist, I suppose. <laughs> Now, a diagnosis of what? A diagnosis a
0: diagnosis of mental illness, and and being an artist, you know, it's kind of like I've, I laughed because when I, at some point after my my work with the Extra Mile, I worked at a uh Symphony with the orchestra, and so I saw no difference between the patients at the hospital and the creatives at the symphony except that one of them had a career and the other of them had a diagnosis because the the creativity is beyond what is normal as is the illness which is and we can't necessarily touch that but it's a very much similar two sides mm-hmm. of one
1: coin well you know writers from shakespeare on down or even before shakespeare have always talked about the connection, the very thin line between exactly. the the genius and the madman. Exactly. Or, 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 or you know, the, 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 the crazy person. Um, and it, in, in part, it deals with uh, a vision of the world. Now, I talked about dealing with the reality, but I think it's also important to think about... Um, A unique perspective on the world or vision of the world. And, you know, there are many people in the world. My son, well, my son's an artist. You know, he's a very talented filmmaker and photographer. He grew up as a painter. um, And I was always amazed at how little reliance he would make uh, or how, how little he relied on copying something from a photograph. It was things he created out of his own mind, out of his own imagination. And I knew that was a special gift.
0: Right. Oh, and was, he is, you know, yeah. There, there
1: are artists who were, tech, and this is not a value statement. I, it's an yeah. attempt on my part to make a descriptive statement. There's some artists who are very incredibly technically pr- proficient. They can take a photograph and reproduce it in almost photographing detail. But that's... Seeing the world as it is and giving it back to us, but there's some artists like my son and many, many others, who see the world that only they see or see the world differently. Well,
0: and they see the beauty in the world.
1: They see the beauty. They may see. They say may see some of the ugliness of the world. They but may, they, but, they, but see they see it. See it. And, and I've they always exactly. told my son, or not always, but for many, many years. Once my son, I think, could. You know, could could understand this? I I said, and this is by way of encouraging him. I said, you have to realize that is that only ten percent of the world's population get you.
0: Oh, that's that's so big. Only
1: ten percent of the world's, and maybe it's less. I use that's a figure I heard somewhere. Uh, only probably only ten percent, or maybe less, of the world's population gets you. Meaning you know they're yeah. creative too and so i think part of the connection between the if, if i can use the term madman and the or madwoman mm-hmm. and the artist is a, a a unique way of seeing the world that the rest of the world doesn't see but i think the, the perhaps part of the difference Is and you said some of them have a job.
0: (laughs) Exactly, you get a career if you're an artist.
1: uh, Well, (laughs) some some do, some some don't. But I think one of the key differences is that the artist, like a good teacher, is a bridge between those two worlds. That a, a good to me, a good artist can can communicate or translate that vision into terms that the world can or at least begin to relate to whereas perhaps and I'm no I'm no psychiatrist and I'm not a mental health professional by any means so if I, if I speak out of turn forgive me but I think people with a mental illness are more kind of enclosed in their world and and are having trouble Communicating with that other world, I exactly. think that's part of the, the, the challenge.
0: And, and socially, how we how we are seen in the world is yep. another thing.
1: Exactly.
0: Um, I took I took lessons for a while. Um, I never realized that that I was an artist that I can I can sing and write and draw and stuff. So I took drawing lessons when I was living in Baton Rouge and having the children. And so uh, my instructor told me, "Well, just go home and sketch something around your house and bring it back." So, I put three onions on the on the arm of the sofa. You know, and I sketched three onions, and I, and I, I brought that back to her. And now that you're saying this, I remember what she said because I still thought I was just crazy at the time. Anyway, so she said, "You're really an artist," and I'm like, "Lady, I sketched three onions on the arm of my sofa in my living room. Where are you coming with this?" And she said. You can see beauty in those onions. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And so that's part of what you're saying. Yeah. Well, I think all— And the the ability to express that— Yes. —is not always something. But it's also the ability to listen to someone with mental illness is not necessarily there by the rest of the world either. No,
1: that's exactly right. But I think all all art certainly involves a technical proficiency. Totally. um, To some degree or another— but I think you know, uh, some artists have a greater vision—that is to to see uh, the beauty in the world, or to, to 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 capture, to reach down and to capture the depth of meaning. Oh my goodness! In yeah. a, and and I'm and I I'm we're kind of skewing towards the visual arts, but I think writers. Oh, right. You know, songwriters, uh, music, songwriters storytellers, writers, storytellers. People who were in the in the verbal arts, language arts, poets, novelists, short story writers, songwriters, for sure, playwrights, have the ability because I think they're they're poets who are technically proficient, and they can put together a nice poem. But when I read it, I'm not moved, right, in the sense that this didn't t- show me any didn't teach me anything new about the world. Right. It, it didn't reveal anything unique about their perspective on life.
0: Because they're not sharing what is their depth, maybe. They, soul, they, ha- they have not reached... What, exactly.
1: What, that's it's often the term. You know, they ha- they haven't reached down deep within themselves. Right. Um, and, you know, actors, I think we can apply that to actors, too. They're people who can memorize lines and project well on stage and move, uh, you know, very, very gracefully across the stage but uh, perhaps are not reaching down deep to to interpret, you know, the meaning of a situation.
0: So let me ask you a question. You were talking about having people accept where they are in terms of hospice. And then in terms of healing, um, there's the reality. and, And hospice, you would have an opinion about this because of all your years with hospice. And I became trained as a hospice volunteer, in 1989, or maybe 1990, mm-hmm. after my diagnosis, you know, in order to be able to better understand. I don't know why I did that. Um, and I also started doing healing at the same time. So there is a difference between healing and curing. Absolutely. So people ask me that one time uh, I had invited my son Drew to, to do... Uh, Something called Story Corps. The Smithsonian had sent mm-hmm. out these places where you could record one generation I to the next. That, yeah. So uh, uh, I'm also very courageous to let my son interview me and go wherever he wants to go. And, and so we, we, he interviewed me about healing. And the technician, who was supposed to be invisible, asks if he can ask a question. Well, I mean, like, we're going to say no. Well, of course. So, and my son had said something like, um, you know, Mom, you're not the greatest housekeeper in the world. But when someone is dying, you know what to do or what to say. And so the question from this technician is, if I'm a healer, why do people die? (laughs) I'm like, well, Jesus died. Buddha died, God, you know, we're going to all die. We all die. So the whole deal is, you know, you don't have to have a terminal illness. Whether you do or whether you don't, we all go in there. But I have often done work with someone who knows their time is limited and they don't get up and walk and they don't miraculously recover from whatever they have. But sometimes they get calm enough to do something that is good for them and good for their family. It it, it allows them to have another level of acceptance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a real, that's important. And and as a someone who worked with hospice, we can't necessarily give you more time. Accepting that you're gonna die doesn't give you more time. Accepting that there's a difference between being healed and being cured doesn't necessarily remove what you wish it would get rid of, but can you speak yeah, to that?
1: Certainly. Um, you know, for 20 years, I probably, ha- ha- I don't know how many times I, I tried to make that distinction. Exactly. In, in speaking in public or trying to just talk about, educate the public about what hospice means and what hospice is. But you're absolutely right. The, um, the beginning point, typically for somebody's uh, involvement with hospice, is the recognition on the part of somebody uh, usually, it's the the referring physician right. that the the patient has a condition from which they will not be be cured, or of which, from which they, exactly. of which they won't be cured. They're, They're they looking cured at from. a
0: projected exactly. end of and, their and life. And we can as say we
1: that we can say that um, uh, uh, with with based on uh, our, our our experience as a physician, so forth that uh, there's there's that it doesn't look like there's anything we can do to rid this the con, r- condition from you. Right. And it best based on our experience we would project that that you have 6 months to live, a year to live, whatever. Now that's usually a a best guess estimate. Exactly. And because
0: um, that is true does it mean people don't live beyond that.
1: Absolutely. It's not
0: saying you
1: know. One of the initial criteria for hospice was, number one, the diagnosis of a life-threatening condition. Secondly, we kind of went in this order, uh, is that a life expectancy of six months or less. Right. But you're absolutely right. The way hospice uh, guide, admission guidelines and recertification guidelines are structured, if a patient's still alive after that six-month period, uh, they can be recertified and can remain in hospice.
0: Because I have a really, really good friend. Who retired from hospice? She graduated from hospice. And so, upon her graduation, as we said, she went back to get some help, like Social Security, whatever, and they didn't believe she was alive. Mm -hmm. So, she calls her doctors, like, they don't believe I'm alive because, well, I can go with you to the office and say, yes, this lady is not. Dead. She is alive, and but she stayed here it's kind here of funny. You're
1: walking exactly
0: because you accept your diagnosis or that your time may be limited doesn't mean it is.
1: It doesn't mean that you will that you will die in that particular moment. But I I I, 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 I focus on the starting point of the recognition that the person the patient has a condition from which they will not recover as an important starting point because. That's, the, that's the, the gateway or the dividing line between what we call chronic illness and the coping phase of health care where if you've got diabetes or some long-term disease that you will deal with, the doctor can say, you have diabetes and you'll probably have diabetes for the rest of your life. Now, we have to keep an eye on it you're not going to die from it, but it could cause complications later. Exactly. That's what we call chronic illness. That's the chronic phase or the coping phase. But once the doctor determines and communicates to you that that can either the condition we've just discovered or the condition that we've been working with for many years is at the point now that we can say there's nothing more we can do to rid you of that condition. Then we have to begin rethinking of what is and what is to be. And so we say, well, if if there's no cure, then hospice must be only about giving up because what else is there oh, if you can't so cure much. somebody? Oh my goodness. Well yeah. of course it's a it's a it's a I'm saying that facetiously, because there is so much more. I've mentioned and just briefly I'll just say what I said earlier, an early starting point is pain. We can address the pain. But much more importantly, Becca, for the context of this conversation, is the healing that's possible. And again, I go back to the root word of healing, how it comes from the word that gives us wholeness. Exactly. And that gives us the word holy. And so beyond freedom from pain, we have to interpret the freedom from physical pain, that is, we have to begin to interpret. And the woman who founded hospice, Dame Cicely Saunders, back in 1967. In England. Was a physician, a social worker, a nurse back in London, England. Exactly right. Yeah. She she did so much for our understanding of death and dying, in part by giving us a broader interpretation of pain. Uh, Before that time, we thought of pain as what, what hurt in our body. She began to help us understand how we can suffer emotionally, socially, and spiritually. That is, right. the whole person can hurt, not just the body. Right. She she helped us understand that we are more than some of our body parts. We are physical beings. We are emotional. We're social. We're spiritual beings. Right. And so we have to be able to do deal with all of that. That is... Put all the pieces of the patient together. But it also involves helping a patient do three things. Come to peace with himself or herself. Come to peace with his or her loved ones. We could say family, but also friends, associates.
0: Right, exactly.
1: And and peace with God, however they interpret God to be. Exactly. Um. You know, it's it's uh, it's it's Buddha, it's Allah, it's Muhammad, it's it's, it's God, all, it's Jesus, right. whoever it is. Exactly. And and uh, so f- that's the kind of healing that hospice was highly successful at and highly skilled at. Uh, still is totally um, yeah, and because that's where it focuses. It focuses on addressing sim- physical symptoms but also the emotional, social, and spiritual symptoms as well. I'll never forget, um, and I had a chance to, even though I was not a clinical person, I'm not a doctor, don't play one on TV, Nobody not a nurse, either. not a social <laughs> yeah. worker, but, um, but I had a chance to visit many patients and families. And I'll never forget one day I was in my office here in Lafayette. Um, and Of course, we served all of Acadiana, totally. you know, the eight parishes that we think of as Acadiana. And I had a call from one of the nurses, and she said, Mike, she says, I, 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 can you can you come down? This was in New Iberia. Uh, 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 and she said, I have a patient that I think you would really like to meet. It, it, or, or, I said, I'll be down there in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And I said, I'm going to bring my camera. Would you ask, would you mind if I can take pictures? And if it's a problem, I don't have to, because again, patient confidentiality is paramount. But the very fact that the nurse was asking me, the layperson, to come and visit suggested that it was okay with the patient that somebody knew about a situation. So I went down, drove straight away and, um, got, got there. And, um, I I knocked on the door, and the wife met me at the door, and she took me into the living room where the patient was sitting in his easy chair. The nurse was sitting there visiting with him, and he was dressed in regular clothes. He looked like a man who might be not in the best health, but he didn't look like somebody. who was dying imminently, and so the nurse... When I walked in, introduced me, she got up and went back to the kitchen, drank coffee with the wife. (laughs) I visited with the patient. Wow. And this guy just held court. And Becca, I was a total stranger, but he proceeded over the next 30 minutes or so to tell me his life story, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. He told me about his relationship with his wife, which was not always the best with his kids was not always the best Yeah,
0: because we're human
1: but at the end of this story he said what is perhaps the most memorable statement from any hospice patient i've ever met in 20 years he said "Podna, if i had known dying was going to be this good i would have done it a long time ago <laughs> He was kind of canai, you know. Exactly. He was kind of connive, and yes. he was looking for a response. And so, obviously, I kind of, How do you, you know, must have had that? my mouth open. Said, "Man, can you?" Uh, I kind of knew what he meant, but I let him explain. He said, "Again, I've not lived the best life. I've not been the best husband. I've not been the best businessman. I've not been the best father." I'm in bad health, but I feel good about myself for the first time in a long, long time. And he said, I have three people to thank for that. The God Almighty, because I've turned my back on him, but he's never turned his back on me. (laughs) My wife, because she stood by me despite everything else. And you people at hospice, because you've made me feel good about myself. I don't mind physically dying now that I've come to peace with myself that's with whole, God and my in my family
0: that's totally it
1: and and I've told that story many many times exactly. and I hope I'm sure people that are listening to this conversation will say I've heard him talk about that before but it's true it's a perfect illustration of what we're talking about that we were not able to rid that man of his cancer but we yeah. did do something wonderful for him, uh, and let me not let me say it a different way. We didn't do it for him.
0: We gave him a place. Where
1: we were uh, facilitators exactly. of a process. Right. Because if he weren't an active participant in that process, he would not have had the courage. Right. To accept what is and what has been. Right. And you know, I think in our theological, from our theological, one of my favorite words in life, especially the older I get, is the word redemption.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah, we like that one. (laughs) I like that one
1: because I witnessed that. I mean, because I think, you know, you get to a certain age in life and you begin to think more about, well, your past is longer than your future.
0: You know, as, as I hear you saying this, one of the things that Hospice provided in its inception was to allow us to remove... Medicine as having all the answers to illness or end of life issues. And one of the jobs of hospice was to let us talk about death and dying. Correct. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross did a whole lot of that. Yes. Here, Sarah Burbaugh did yes. a lot of that. We talked about my quote when when she was on, on the podcast. Yes. I was quoted here at AOC, and I used the word passed away, and, like, they misquoted me. I would never say "pass away. Even with all the work that hospice has done, we don't want to say somebody died. Well, that's harsh.
1: Yeah. Well... It's real, no they did they did die, yeah
0: exactly, and that and that dying itself is not a medical procedure, it's not a medical event, and it's not a religious event, it happens to everybody in every religion it's a it's a it's an end of life as we know it, but medicine can't save it, and our churches can't save it. It's about the bigger picture than the individual doctors or hospitals or treatment, and bigger than the individual churches that we all come from.
1: Well, I it's think, so
0: personal. I think that creativity is going to help us to accept being inspired. Is is and 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 so I don't know. There's a whole lot we could go on well, and on. <laughs> I, th- I, th-
1: I think. You, I mean, you're right that, that. Well, first of all, in my in my mind. There's a difference between death and dying, the word death and the word dying. Exactly. Death is a point, a, a, a finite moment yeah. when we can define it by a f- the physiological functions. The sure. brain stops, the heart stops beating, you know, whatever. We could say, okay, time of death, you know, so you time need of a doctor death, 905. To, you
0: need a doctor to declare that or something, but right. whether the doctor ever comes or not, it
1: happens. It, it happened. It happened. That's the, But there's also what I call the process of dying, and that's much more involved. That's what happens with a man down in New Iberia.
0: Exactly. You know,
1: he went through the process of dying, and That is a very personal experience. But at the same time, the one thing that unites us, the seven-plus billion people on this planet, the one thing that unites—two things, I guess—but the one thing that unites us more than anything else is our human mortality.
0: Exactly.
1: No, nope, no, nope. it doesn't matter how old, how young, how rich, how poor, how smart, how uneducated you are, how whatever, how gifted, how ungifted, whatever. We all pass through that way. The mm-hmm. other thing is, I like to say that, you know, we're all born to a mother, although medical science has done a lot of things about oh, yeah. That's why I kind of—maybe yeah, we'll talk about that one as much because medical science has done lots of things about how we can be born, conceived and be born. Exactly. But we're all born somehow or another, but we all die.
0: Exactly. And
1: I like to think, you know, my belief— is it we all die into the arms of a loving God.
0: Exactly. Uh, But the thing is, if I teach you to die like a Catholic, I can't help you die if you're Jewish because I don't know how a Jewish person dies. And how do you die like a Hindu? Because, you know, I'm not really Hindu, and I might have some Buddhist friends, but I'm not Buddhist either. So how we prepare someone to die has to be bigger than how the people in our town.
1: Yes. We don't die
0: in French uh, or English. How do Frenchmen die compared to Englishmen? So we, we we have to go um, to a broader place than yes. just where we come from to it, accept, I think. And,
1: you know, uh, um, I learned that lesson probably more in my experience working with a hospice in North Carolina. I learned it to some extent, that lesson, that we have to be broadly ecumenical. Yes, yes. G- going back to what I said earlier, I said— What's the starting point for hospice? Well, the starting point is where the patient is. Exactly. And and so, this is a lesson I've learned a lot from um, chaplains in hospice or pastoral care counselors or whatever they're called, different organizations, is we have to, our job is not to necessarily convert somebody from whatever they are to whatever I am, but it's to meet them meet wherever them they with are. Them. But I learned that even more so in North Carolina. Um, believe it or not, it was the chaplains who were the most adamant We, we in, in that uh, situation. Oh, that's wonderful. This was in, in, in Raleigh, North Carolina, where I worked in Wake County, and um, we built, uh, one of the reasons I went there was to help raise money to create a hospice campus. Wow. We had a nine-acre campus wow. um, um, adjacent to the, or close to the university, North Carolina State University. Right. Um, and okay. We had uh, three buildings. One was a twenty-thousand-square-foot uh, 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 freestanding hospice home with so twenty you had, like, patient inpatient rooms. Hospice. That's uh-huh. awesome. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, of course, we we continued to see patients at home, but that was our nursing homes. We had a uh, a twenty-six-thousand-square-foot administrative building that also housed the grief center. The grief. Wow, center. cool. But there was a thousand foot a square foot. I called it most of us when we were in the, we were in the design planning phase referred to this 1000 square foot building as the chapel. And I'm coming from South Louisiana as a good Catholic boy and I have no problems with the word chapel. But the the pastoral care counselors there said you know we might not want to call that a chapel and we said why and they said chapel may not be the word that some people from their religious traditions, they might understand as something else. So we called it the spiritual sanctuary.
0: Wow, cool! The
1: spiritual sanctuary.
0: Yeah, because the same thing applies as in my training as a healer. Um, one of the ways of healing I learned through something that nurses created as like a school, and it was called healing touch. It's mm-hmm. it, it's a it's a legitimate. Um, name of their particular uh, way of healing, And, and they referred to God as source. Because if you're a Jewish nurse, if you're a Native American nurse, if you're a Christian nurse, if you're whatever, source was generic. Now, that doesn't mean I have to try to explain to my grandma, who is no longer living, that God wasn't Catholic. But we have to go beyond how we were raised, and who we know to a broader, so we can be inclusive. Yeah, yeah. That's important.
1: Well, and again, if somebody's tradition, and, and of course, and this was a much bigger issue in Raleigh, North Carolina, than in Lafayette, Louisiana, because Raleigh, North Carolina, was a true melting pot, not just a a, 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 a national melting pot. It was an international melting pot. Yeah, yeah. Um, for one thing, you had three major universities there, within a thirty-mile international radius. students. You had also the Research Triangle Park, which was a uh, a center for research and development for many major corporations, and so and you had more PhDs per capita than any other part in the country, uh, and many of the people that lived there were not Native Americans; they were from. India, they were from China, they were from other countries. And so obviously they, just because they moved to America, didn't stop being Buddhist or Hindu or or whatever their belief was. And so for us then to minister to a patient who was Hindu, for instance, and tried to make them speak to them as Christians, that was not healing. That was creating a division. Yeah. That was doing a damage, well, it's, a it's, disservice it was a to disconnect the patient. Because exactly.
0: If you didn't live on a farm, I can't talk to you about farming.
1: Well, and even if the the, but, or but again, even yeah. But I, again, understand. our pastoral care counselors were very aware of that. But if they had not been, and even their best intentions tried to speak to them as good, faithful Christians, there it's like speaking a language that, like you exactly. said, people can't even relate to, and therefore you're missing the the mark. You're not fully ministering to that patient.
0: You're being too specific and not inclusive of any differences they may have. Exactly. So those
1: those counselors, those spiritual care counselors were were very good. And they, again, they taught me a lot about accepting or, or trying to move to where a patient was.
0: And accepting a general or a larger picture of God than only the Father of the Christ, you know doesn't mean I'm being unchristian in doing so. I'm just embracing all of the brothers and sisters. Yeah, exactly. So we, we just have a few more minutes. Is there anything you would like to say to... <laughs>
1: well, do, you wow. want to talk, do you want to talk about the documentary that you're bringing to town here? Well, uh, you can
0: know, only mention it because I'm not sure if this is going to be there or not. But the whole thing is every death is natural even if we don't like it. Yes. So I'm bringing a film to Lafayette on
1: the July, 3rd of July, 3rd, isn't it? Yes.
0: And it's called Suicide: The Ripple Effect. So I'm hoping to fill a theater, the ACA here in Lafayette with with $16 tickets and inviting people to come talk about a type of death and dying nobody wants to talk about. So that's my challenge, and um, I'm happy that you're helping me with that and reminding me to mention it, and I'm going to ask Matt to to have this be on the podcast before that day and, and let people know because it's an extension of of healing and the subjects of today that we went to, even though we didn't know where yeah. we
1: were going. Well, and I think it it relates to another part of hospice as well. And that is, well, we talked about hospice helping people come to terms with and have a discussion about end-of-life issues. We talked about hospice trying to offer healing to the patient and the family in terms exactly. of their their, their their physical, their emotional, social, and spiritual healing. But the third part of hospice we didn't talk about, and, and this also connects to your documentary, and that is the, the grief process for those who are left behind. Exactly. And hospice was very, very—in fact, I was very proud that Hospice of Acadiana and Hospice of Wake County in North Carolina— put lots of resources into their bereavement programs. By resource, I mean money, which meant I had to raise a lot of money for it, but I was always proud to do it because I really believed. In fact, I got involved with hospice because of a before and after experience. My father died the year before hospice got started in Baton Rouge. My brother died nine years later and got to see before and after, and that's kind of was my entree um, as a family member before and after um, the hospice experience. So what your documentary is doing is talking about suicide prevention, I suppose.
0: Or at least awareness, because you, you can't uh-huh. really prevent illness, you can't really prevent death, but if we can accept it and, and let it be a subject that's on the table rather than a white elephant, like the whole death thing, then then more acceptance of it can maybe relieve people from the pressure to actually do it.
1: Yeah, can talk about it, I think, enabling people, but also helping people come to terms with it if they have had a a suicide in their life, their family, or friends.
0: My daughter and my dad died from suicide, and there was nothing I could do to stop that. Uh And that's hard to live with sometimes, especially today.
1: But again, I had a
0: long time to deal with this. But there's,
1: it, it, would it be fair to say there there could be healing from that experience as totally. well? Totally, because so, it's
0: another way of accepting, accepting what a form is of death we don't
1: like and and dealing with it. And if we had more time, we could talk about the grieving process as a form of healing. And you mentioned Sarah Brabant earlier, your your last guest. I had the pleasure and privilege of oh working God. with Sarah in the creation of the Grief Center. Exactly. S- southwest Louisiana here in Lafayette. And Sarah and other people involved with that, uh, Pat Andrus and Ida Nisi and many others, Joan LaFleur, many others who really helped me understand, even though I'd been through grief myself, it's a helped different. me understand, you know. Uh, and
0: grief is individual, you know, you can help a family with their grief and one person may need to do some physical work and some other person may need to do some creative work and some other person may need to do some uh, spiritual work. And so we don't all come together and grieve in the same way at the same time. And it makes it hard.
1: It does make it hard. Uh, also, um The relationships we had, or the relationship we had with the deceased person may be different. For instance, I can think about my father, my mother, and my older brother. Those were all three. Even I had two parents. My relationship with my father was different from my relationship with my mother, even though that was a parent-child relationship. Exactly. Uh, And certainly my relationship with my older brother was much different. And then I have right. a younger brother who's passed away. My relationships with those four people were all different, therefore, I'm going to grieve differently. Exactly. Uh, and and then and this is something Sarah uh, helped me understand too: is the circumstances under which somebody died makes a huge difference. If it was a long-term illness, you saw it coming; it's difficult. That's one thing. If it's a sudden death, an accident. Uh, heart attack, stroke, that type of thing, but then if it's even more traumatic, a, a suicide, a homicide, a, a, a tragic accident, a nine eleven situation Violence, yeah. a, a violent death uh, that compounds the grieving even more. so those are all uh, yeah things that makes grieving difficult, but also it makes the job of the grief counselor. Very challenging because, again, he or she has to understand those compounding factors so in the as, grief process. As
0: difficult as it is to deal with the subject of suicide itself, if we don't deal with it, it will deal with us. Yes. So um, I'm hoping in some way that bringing this film called Suicide, the Ripple Effect is going to help us deal with healing that can come after yes, suicide. that's right. Not just the ripple effect of loss— but the ripple effect of how we can overcome loss and make sense of it. Yeah,
1: exactly. So, so once again, that's it's July when July, July the third. Uh huh.
0: At the Acadiana Center for the Arts. At what time? I think it starts at seven in the evening. Uh huh.
1: Yeah. And how so, can people get more information about that? They can call. They can call you.
0: Yeah, they can call. What's me your phone number? My, I don't know that I wanted to. But anyway, okay, got gotcha, you. Okay. I, uh, <laughs> call I, AOC. I it. have. Yeah, you can. You can call. Uh, Becca, you can text, oh, not, not the word, BeccaBegnow at yahoo.com. You can reach me the via email. email. That's
1: a good way to do it. Okay.
0: And call the Acadian Center for the Arts. They should know. They should know. And then, then I'll give them my number. Uh-huh. So thank you. Thank you, Mike, for coming. Oh, up.
1: my pleasure. This we went by a lot just to talk in, about. We had. Oh, I, I had no yeah. idea we had so much to talk about. Yeah, but thank you. Right. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to Le Cadeau Podcast. I'm your host, Becca Begna. Matt Roberts produced the show. Thanks to AOC Community Media for the use of their facilities. For information about AOC, you can visit aocinc.org. Thank you very much. Merci beaucoup.
1: The views and opinions expressed on this or any program on the AOC Podcast Network do not reflect the views and opinions of Lafayette Consolidated Government, Cox Communications, LUS Fiber, AOC Community Media, its board of directors, or its staff. To learn more about becoming a community media producer, visit us on the web at aocinc.org.